everybody, and welcome to the show. Join me as I dive deep into the captivating, confronting, and character-building world that is competitive swimming. The pool is a school, but the lessons are for life. My name is Duncan Todd, and you are on deck with Dunk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another installment of the Book of Eight Lanes, where I condense and distill 40 years of experience and insight as a competitive swimmer and as a coach into eight ideas, one for each lane of an Olympic final. Today, we'll be talking about our second qualifier into that final, swimming in lane one. Now, if you missed the last episode, do go and check it out. We had a great time talking about focusing on the journey and not the goal. And today's discussion references and in some respects builds upon the ideas we presented last time. But shifting our focus back to our next finalist, and for purposes of a succinct tagline, I'm going to lift a popular recent saying that I'm sure all of you have already come across. And then, for the depth and inspiration behind the concept, we'll be ducking back to the 6th century and meeting up with a fascinating fellow called Seng San, or as he was known in Japan, as Sosan. So, without further ado, representing our second concept in our Book of Eight Lanes and swimming in Lane 1 is... Keep calm and carry on. Yes, here's another fluffy concept. It's interesting that when I initially sat down to think about and select the eight pieces of advice for this project, I didn't anticipate settling on ideas as potentially amorphous as our first two finalists. Upon reflection, however, these ideas are so important because a swimming journey is usually a very long journey indeed. Age groupers will start lining up behind the blocks from as young as 7 or 8 years old, and it isn't uncommon now for the superstars of swimming to continue competing well into their 30s. That's a long time in anyone's book, and hence, useful perspectives and mental approaches become incomparably important. So, keep calm and carry on. When setbacks occur, don't panic. When you're battling through a rough patch at training, or trying to correct a technical fault, or trying to push through and reach new levels of fitness, if things aren't going your way, don't overreact. Our modern social media-driven world loves the sensational. In every shape and shade, it's always the lurid and the dramatic that captures our attention. And we seem to live in a day and age of catastrophizing where massive mountains are magically manufactured out of measly molehills. This worrying trend is amplified by the increasing presence of what I'm going to call helicopter parents. Parents who feel an irresistible need to do something to help their kids. Parents that equate love with intervention. Now, I've lost track of the occasions where, at a local age group carnival, I've watched a young swimmer get disqualified and return to their parents in floods of tears. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. It's a rite of passage. Now, a child crying after being disqualified, well, that's not surprising. What is troubling, however, is the manner in which parents today themselves react. Rather than calmly comfort their child with reassurance, acceptance, and love, they storm on deck to confront poolside officials, remonstrate with coaches, and make a huge scene by being visibly distraught. Now, that behavior teaches children that it's normal 
to treat tough times and experiences with dramatic overindulgence. They miss the opportunity to learn through a tough lesson. They lose sight of the big picture, as well as the ability to put that disqualification in the perspective of potentially a 20-year journey in the sport. Don't panic. Don't overreact. Keep calm. Now, when I say that, don't panic, keep calm, I'm not only talking about managing setbacks, defeats, and tough times. Just as a journey is the flip side of a goal, a setback is a flip side of a victory. And it is equally as important to keep calm in the face of the good times as well. Lessons and developments are hidden in disqualifications and perceived failures. Out of the bad comes good. Complacency and arrogance, however, can come from extended success. Out of the good comes bad. Not always, not every time, but with surprising frequency. Now, this phenomenon, where the seeds of good times are contained within the soil of bad times and vice versa, reminds me of a great little story. A sudden storm had ripped through a small community, wreaking haphazard damage to the houses and farms in the region. Worst hit was an elderly shepherd who had a field filled with sheep and goats. The winds had blown fiercely and knocked a long stretch of his fencing down, and in the chaos, his prized animals had escaped into the countryside. Once the storm had abated, he hurried to the field to survey the damage. Together with his fellow residents, the shepherd discovered his loss. The villagers all lamented, Oh, how terrible for you! You've lost your flock and your herd! Surely the gods are punishing you. The old man said nothing. Once the rains had stopped, the man's son, strong and capable, headed out in search of those missing animals. Hours passed, and eventually he returned, and before him he drove a large, bleating, boisterous group of sheep and goats. He had found the scattered animals, and in addition, the young man led a fine stallion that he had found while out in the country looking for the herd. The villagers rejoiced. What luck, they exclaimed. Your son has retrieved all of your animals, and what a fine horse he has found. The gods have surely blessed you. The old man said nothing. The next day, the son was attempting to break the horse in, and whilst trying to ride the fractious animal, he was thrown and he landed heavily, breaking his leg badly. News of the accident spread through the community, and the residents were unanimous in their sympathy. What terrible luck this is! Such a bad injury! Your son won't be able to work for months on the farm. The old man said nothing. The next day, a unit from the local lord's garrison appeared unannounced in the village. There was to be a war with the neighbouring province, and the soldiers went from house to house, rounding up all the able-bodied men to fight. But because of his broken leg... The son was left behind. The villagers that had not been drafted for the war all converged on the old man's house. What luck, they exclaimed. Your son has been spared the war. Such a blessing. Once again, the old man said nothing. Now, it feels like that story could go on forever. It illustrates perfectly how an individual event that might be in isolation considered good or bad subsequently can lead to another event that could be judged its opposite. And the villagers spent their lives being blown around by the events as they occurred, one minute remonstrating, the next minute celebrating. Only the old man remained calm in the face of the flux and changes of life. 
Unsurprisingly, such a nuanced idea that the seeds of good fortune are held within the experience of misfortune and the opposite was something our ancient predecessors spent time thinking about. While keep calm and carry on is a 20th century slogan born from World War II that's now plastered on t-shirts and mugs the world over, the idea it represents is one that has stood the test of time. In this instance, we're talking about 1,400-ish years. Back in the 6th century, an enlightened wandering monk known as Sengsan in China and called Sosan in Japan wrote a short piece he called the Sinsing Ming with apologies to native Mandarin speakers for that absolutely munted pronunciation, I'm sure. It translates roughly as the mind of absolute trust. Now, posterity records Sengsan as the third patriarch of Zen, which I think you'll all agree is an awesome title. And for such an accomplished fellow, very little record of him survives. But his poem, The Mind of Absolute Trust, is such an incredibly deep work. Its profound depth and insight is thrown into sharp relief when compared to the brevity of the work. It's an absolute favorite of mine, and I carry a copy of it folded up in my wallet. And as I've mentioned, the entire work can be typed out on a single sheaf of paper. And the very first sentences alone convey the essence of that message. And it reads, The great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and bad is the primal disease of the mind. <laughs> wow, we what towering insight in five short lines. Now, as I'm sure you're probably discovering on this journey of the Book of Eight Lanes, in Zen and Tao, there's an inordinate amount of attention placed on the concept of effortless action, or Wu Wei. The great way is the way of life, and it is the flowing of the river to the sea. It suggests an approach where one has faith and ease in the events of life, rather than an approach that struggles against the tide. Seng Zan says that life flows so much more easily when one isn't too tightly attached to their preferences. Now, it's important here to point out that he wasn't suggesting that we shouldn't have preferences. After all, it's a human condition to want comfort, care, success, wealth, health, and happiness. All swimmers want to drop best times every race. You want to make teams, you want to win gold medals. And on the flip side, regardless of creed or color, none of us would willingly seek out pain, suffering, setbacks, and trouble. No one enjoys swim meets where they get disqualified or swims absolutely shocking races. So, naturally, we all have preferences, but the key here is to not be too attached to them. That's the keep calm bit. Is it possible to illustrate the idea of having preferences but not being too attached to them? I'm going to give it a red-hot go. Imagine for a moment that you're walking along one of the pristine, beautiful beaches of the Queensland coast. Those of us fortunate enough to have experienced them know that the sand on those beaches is so superbly fine. Let's equate each individual grain of sand with an event on our swimming journey. Incidents, both good and bad, 
Each tiny grain is a setback, or a qualifying time achieved, or a bust-up with the coach, or a gold medal. And together, in conglomerate, they represent a journey through a swimming career. Visualize yourself standing on that beach, and kneeling down on the warm, sun-blessed sand. You drive a hand into that soft-yielding sand, and you grab a fistful. Standing up, you keep your fist clenched in an effort not to let the sand filter and fall through the cracks between your fingers. No matter how hard you squeeze that fist, grains of sand will slickly spill out of your grasp. Now try again. Drive your hand and gather up another scoop of sand, but this time, instead of gripping and clenching it with force and effort, smoothly turn your fist palm up and open your hand. And all of a sudden, with ease and simplicity, your hand will support a golden pile of sand without effort and without struggle. That first approach, bald fists and strength and effort and direction, is the mental equivalent of being totally consumed by your preferences and your aversions. It's reacting with hot tears to a disqualification. It's skipping over the moon with unabashed joy with a new personal best. It's the -the over-the-top social media-esque approach where everything is drama and tumultuous turmoil. Holding on that tight even for five minutes is draining, let alone tackling an entire swimming career that way. The second approach is more aligned with the advice of that old wandering monk. Experience the sand, engage with it, but this time you can do so without stress, without difficulty, without the creeping exhaustion of the tightly grabbed fist. Got DQ'd? Okay, feel what you feel, but don't go overboard. The sun will rise tomorrow. Made that team? Congratulations. Enjoy that sense of satisfaction, but don't blow an O-ring while doing so. You might find things more manageable, more sustainable, when instead of trying to focus on each tiny individual grain of sand and pinging around like a pinball in reaction to it, you zoom out a bit and you take in the bigger picture with a smoother, calmer mindset. As Seng San so wisely said 1400 years ago, the great way isn't difficult for those unattached to their preferences. Now, let's look at those four remaining lines that he opened with all those hundreds of years ago. Let go of longing and aversion, and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and bad is a primal disease of the mind. And this is where things get subtle. This is where it's easy to miss. Let's consider those words. Longing. Aversion. They're strong words, aren't they? To me, longing incorporates a feeling of the unfulfilled, the unrealized. Aversion is dislike ramped up to over 9,000. It's a visceral word, one that conveys the image of an instinctive repulsion. And then what about cling? Almost another desperate word there. These are all very emotive, draining terms. And when we're caught up in such overwhelming emotions, it's hard to see straight. I can't count the number of occasions when, as a young swimmer, I thought the world was ending because I got DQ'd or raged that the afternoon session was 16 400s fly on 540. In those moments, it was impossible to remain objective. And in those moments, reality looked different. It felt different. And it's easy, when we're not seeing straight, 
to subsequently make poor decisions. But back to the poem. The struggle between good and bad is the primal disease of the mind. Wow, a primal disease. Now here I interpret this as less of an illness, per se, and more of a literal unease, a dis-ease, a stress, a conflict. But Seng San wasn't messing around, was he? As far as he was concerned, this clinging too tightly to both preferences and aversions was a primal disease. You can't get more fundamental and significant than primal. Now, I witnessed this primal struggle in one of my swimmer's minds recently during a session. This particular swimmer, let's call him Tim, would struggle in threshold sets, especially when we'd be doing hundreds. He was okay on the 50s, hitting targets and managing the load, but as soon as he had to turn and deal with the back end, things would change. And I'd see the struggle. It was clear as day. His visceral aversion reflected on his face. His features would fall. His body language would morph. The young man, who moments earlier would have been bright and bubbly with his teammates, literally transformed. The smile would vanish, or rather, it would invert into a grimace that looked painful to produce. Arms would fold over his chest, with his hands clutching at suddenly tender shoulders, and his entire being screamed, I can't do this, and I bloody well hate it. Now, for the duration of that set, the texture of Tim's world changed because his mind was gripping, grasping, and squeezing every bitter drop out of his juicy aversion. I pulled him aside one afternoon once the set was done. It was a beautiful afternoon with a vibrant blue sky and cotton ball clouds scattered here and there. Now, off to the southwest, there was a line of darker, rain-heavy clouds slowly rolling in from the tablelands. Mate, I said, look at the sky. What do you see? He looked up. Clouds, he mumbled. Yep, clouds. What else? He looked at me, confused. Took another glance. Birds, he said uncertainly. I said, yes, sure, birds too. It was late afternoon, and the cockatoos were busy squawking and swooping through the air on their way to evening drinks. Are clouds and birds the sky, or are they in the sky, I asked. The poor kid was looking at me like I was losing it, and he didn't know that that ship had sailed years earlier. Uh, In, he answered by half asking. Right, so, the blue expanse, the sky, does it ever change? No, he said, apart from night time. I said, all right, good. Although at night, the sky doesn't actually change. It just looks different because of light and darkness. But I didn't want to get into that. What about the clouds, I asked. Do they change? Sure, he said, more confidently. Good. So, not only do they change as they float by, but they come and go, correct? Yep, he nodded. All right. So, as those clouds are coming and going, what's the sky doing? (laughs) The poor kid... I bailed him out as the silence stretched out a little bit too long. Nothing, I said. The sky is doing nothing. It just sits there, unperturbed, unchanging, unmoved. So, what has this got to do with the set that we did today? Tim shrugged. His face spoke a thousand words. Mate, those 100-meter repeats that you hate, they're those dark storm clouds rolling by. They blow in. They might storm, they might not, and then they carry on past. 
And what do you do? You jump into those clouds. You're waiting for them. You get lost in that dark, seething mass. You can't even see straight. Your whole world becomes that stormy cloud. And it's tossing you around. It's dumping on you. It's beating you up. And the whole time you're fighting it, hating it, raging against it. But buddy, it's going to kick your ass every time. Tim had the good grace to nod. So I continued, instead of going to war with those sets in your head, how about trying to be more like the blue sky? Just stay calm, just watch, don't panic, don't battle, don't exhaust yourself, don't get lost in the fog. When the sets pop up, just get through them. You'll manage the work better, mate. Trust me. To his credit, Tim made an effort to change the way he approached those sets and things got better. And from that moment on, anytime I saw his mindset begin to revert, every time I saw his proverbial fist closing around the set, I'd call out to him, fighting clouds or blue sky swimming, buddy? And this is where the conflict lies, at the meeting point between life and living and reality and our minds and our perception. Not only do we tend to cling to our opinions and our convictions, our dislikes and our preferences, thereby causing that primal disease that Seng San was talking about, we also have to deal with the truth that minds operate like filing cabinets. They're structured, they're linear, they're logical, they're predictable. And life itself, well, life is like that raging river. It's tumbling, it's tumultuous, it's tempestuous. How on earth can we ever hope to properly file a river. Now, swimming, it's a tough old sport. It's a challenging and confronting journey that leaves no room for excuses and forces absolute personal accountability. It'll take every ounce of your determination and courage to stay the course during the long, hard seasons of training. So do what you can to make that journey as smooth and as sustainable as possible. Don't cling and grasp, and struggle. Don't fight the clouds. Instead, imagine yourself sitting next to that wise old wanderer, Seng Tsan, in a flowing field on a rolling hillside, just watching those clouds of life float past the deep blue endless sky. His poem, The Mind of Absolute Trust, is a treasure, unmatched in its wisdom. But even he, I am sure, would nod his head in easy approval to the modern distillation of that message that looks so damn great on a t-shirt. Keep calm and carry on.